it's a really interesting process where you're able to turn a three, four thousand dollar a month rental property into a nine, ten thousand dollar a month rental property. And all it costs effectively is like, you know, three to 500K, uh, which is a high number. But then when you actually amortize that over 25, 30 years on a refi, like your net cash flow impact is pretty massive. Welcome to For Rent Conversations to Better the Rental Industry. I'm your host, Mackenzie Wilson. Whether you're a first time homeowner, an accidental landlord, a seasoned investor, or perhaps just a curious tenant, this is the podcast for you. Join the conversations we cover best practices, industry news, and one-on-ones with thought leaders in the rental industry. We'll go deeper to cover the lessons learned and get to the root cause of challenges facing the rental industry today. We'll empower you with the information you need to be a better landlord or a more informed tenant. Let's get to it. So this is a fun conversation today. I've got both myself, so it's Mackenzie Wilson here, alongside two CEOs of Perch is Alex Leduc, and then my CEO over here at Central Key, uh, Villalaika. So what a fun conversation, some smart minds at the table. I'm going to do more of the listening and let you two gentlemen talk and probably poke in every once in a while to make sure if I need clarification or highlight something important that you're saying. But uh, let's just get into it. So folks that haven't met Alex, Alex, who are you, your background, and what led you to being the CEO of Perch? Yeah, no, thanks for having me today, and uh, glad to be on with uh, you two gentlemen here. Uh, so I started Perch almost exactly five years ago now, next month. Uh, but really, my background, so I worked at some of the lenders, more on the so very variety of roles. So underwriting, audit, treasury, corporate finance is where I ended up landing most of the time. And then left uh, about five years ago to start this myself. Uh, so how I, the easiest way to think of it, what, what is it that I did before and why do I do what I do now? So firsthand, I can see the giant disconnect between the parties of the real estate transaction, uh, whether it's the realtor, the broker, the lender, the appraiser, uh, the lawyer, everybody. So I took the skill set that I had, which was how do I help banks make as much money as they can from people to then helping people to save as much as they can from the bank. So mm. been doing that for five years and uh, yeah, haven't looked back since. Cool. And so you started Perch, you had this focus on helping both the, the parties. So landlords or homeowners doing their finance and getting the best deal and also making the deals work better for the bank. But what really makes you guys different from, from your competitors in the market, which I'm assuming is other mortgage brokers, or are you guys lenders or are you a bit of both? Yeah. Uh, so I'd say first and foremost, our biggest competitor is the banks. Uh, so Canadians are notoriously, I don't want to say bad, but notoriously known uh, to be extremely reliant on that comfortable uh, you know, big five, big six banks. Mm-hmm. So 60% of people just go directly to their bank. They don't go anywhere else. The remaining 40 use a broker. So our traditional channels would be the bank and then the mortgage brokers. And that's where the variety of people go today. So where we differ against both of those parties would be in some ways similar, but some some key differences. So with the bank, we have drastically more mortgage options available. So there's going to be different programs, qualifying criteria, things like that, where one bank might not necessarily have one, uh, that it fits that client's profile. So we, just for context, have thousands of different mortgage combinations we can do from across 30 lenders, which enables us to give clients better options. So most brokers would then argue that they also have that advantage where they can offer different products. I think where we then compete the most or differentiate the most against a traditional broker is more in the user experience. And this will also be a differentiating point with bank, but just to parallel it to the broker. So our experience is fully digital. There is literally no in-person component. It's outside of the nine to five work hours. 
our app does most of the work. So you can do about 70% of what you would need the mortgage advisor or broker to do yourself without needing it to be on their time. So historically, how that process works with the broker is there's a lead funnel engine, then you're kind of stuck on phone calls or back and forth email to get things done. We are enabling people to get a lot of the information without having to talk to anybody and then getting an advisor to solidify their plan. So versus the traditional broker, that also enables us to be more efficient and pass back some of those savings to the consumer to save money. Uh, so we're typically some of the lowest rates in Canada, below other brokers and other banks. Okay, very cool. I know a big challenge when you get a new mortgage is a lot of paperwork and qualification <laughs> and, and additional paperwork to make sure the qualification is still good. Uh, do you guys handle that a little bit differently than an average mortgage broker that has perhaps a, a Google form or online application? Yes, definitely. So there's a lot less repetition. So in Perch, what's really cool is you create your profile and then that profile is like your hub. Uh, so even if you've got a mortgage with, oh, let's say, I don't know, one of the banks and then one of the other uh, credit unions, within your Perch profile, we're updating you on all of your portfolio of properties simultaneously. So should you break your mortgage? How much equity is available in your home? We even do property value updates every month on how much has your properties appreciated. So we're giving you almost like a real estate portfolio management from a financing standpoint within one app. And then versus, but why that's also beneficial is if you started, like you want to buy another property and you go to your bank, they're going to make you fill out everything mm. again, as if they've never met you before. Uh, versus with us, you're essentially just scanning your information to see if anything's changed, updating your profile, and then everything gets pushed forward. So any docs, like your photo ID that isn't expired, that is still good, carries forward. And then we just ask you for the bare minimum to move on to the next step. So most people with us, it takes them about five to 10 minutes to complete an application. Mm. Whereas it can take a lot longer than that to go through a traditional channel. Right. That's very interesting. And, and how long is the turnaround process, Alex? Like, I think we've had some experience with your kind of app personally, but uh, it, how does that compare to a traditional broker or bank? Yeah. So we target for same day pre-approvals. We've literally wow. done them in as little as 20 minutes. The average bank or broker will usually take about three days. Wow. wow. That's, that's a, quite a difference. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, being fans of technology and automating things and then kind of streamlining processes that that's the way to go. And, and that's great to see kind of somebody doing this in the mortgage space. And I hope as part of that profile that you guys put together, you're also accounting for rental income for those investment properties coming in to, to see kind of what the, uh, you know, what, what that financial impact looks like. Uh, on that note. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and on that note as well, I wanted to ask a bit about uh, Perch Capital that you guys recently launched as well and kind of the purpose and the, and the vision and mission behind that, that, that side of the business. So some use cases that we've seen. So last year, this was a really big issue where you had house prices coming down and then people's sales were collapsing. Like it was a bit of a domino effect where one buyer pulls out, which then is the down payment for their next purchase. So now that buyer pulls out. So there was a bit of a cascading effect and we were doing bridge loans to help people carry their sale over so that they didn't lose their purchase. Oh, wow. Uh, we've also done renovations or flips. So people wanting to buy the property, fix it up two, three months later and sell it at a premium. Uh, conversions, taking a home into a two unit, or even now with a lot of the regulation around garden suites, mm -hmm. uh, converting your one unit property into a three unit or even a four unit property um, typically is expensive. Some people might not qualify for it, but we can lend on the as improved value of the property up front. You can upgrade your property, start collecting the excess cash flow, and then refinance out immediately. And that must be uh, a common so use case now. Yeah, especially with kind of the, the mandate from, from the government to really push kind of the new supply in the market and allow kind of homeowners to, you know, split out units and then add in new uh, units to the, to the property. Um, are you seeing? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've got one client who's doing it in abundance. So he's very keen on this. 
but essentially, yeah, it's it's a it's a really interesting process where you're able to turn a three four thousand dollar a month rental property into a nine ten thousand dollar a month rental property, and all mm-hmm. it costs effectively is like you know three to five hundred k, which is a high number. But then when you actually amortize that over 25, 30 years on a refi, like your net cash flow impact is pretty massive. Right, Sweet. absolutely, that's cool. Okay, so so let's just I want to slow this down too, and I'll have a question on on more on the layman side. So there's there's two come here. So part one, uh, I'm a landlord or a new investor. How do I keep building up and, and, and acquire more properties and mortgages without hitting my lending limit? That typical wall that we hit with the banks where we can't get any more mortgages. How do you guys help with that, or how do you guys approach that that challenge for for landlords and home and investors? Yeah, absolutely. So with Traditional lending. So most people's mentality is, and, and again, it's just kind of the way they're, they're almost habituated. It's like the lowest rate is the only viable form of financing. So a lot of people can't get comfortable outside of that prime rate in an area. Okay. But the reality is, is everyone's eventually going to hit their max. Typically with banks or any traditional lender, you'll hit like a five or six door limit is where most of them operate. If you're a private wealth client and you've got a sweetheart deal behind the scenes, you can maybe get to 10. Uh, so I've seen 10 doors doable at some of the lenders. Then you have to get into real sophisticated, like to go beyond that, you have to start kind of parsing everything out. So maybe you have holding companies that hold certain properties that are with one lender, then you've got another one with another lender. But at some point, as you scale that, you will cap out uh, where you hit your door limit. So then once you get past the A limit, you can go to what a lot of people will then do is like either a credit union or some of the alternative lending solutions. The reason why you eventually have to go beyond prime lending is the way that they qualify rental properties is extremely punitive. So on the A side, prime lending, they'll typically only count 50% of your rental income. Right. Yeah. Why that's an issue is like you can imagine where, you know, let's say on day one, your property cash flows, according to their qualifying ratios, it doesn't. It actually is basically only 50% of the way. Right. Yeah. Uh, so unless you have a ton of income, like from your from your job or other income sources, it's really hard to scale that and still qualify for the next property. So eventually, you then have to go to alternative lenders. Alternative lenders will take anywhere from eighty or seventy to one hundred percent of your rental yeah. income, which then gives you a pretty big. Right. And funny, so funny enough, I just wanted to jump in at Mac and just you know the yeah. reason that the banks only do take fifty percent of their rental income is because rental income is notoriously unsecured, right? It, uh, there's many reasons why it doesn't get paid, including tenant defaults, vacancy risk, occupancy risk. So, uh-huh. you know, th- this has been an area for, for, that we've explored in, in, in speaking with some credit unions and lenders in the ability of actually providing single key, uh, the rent guarantee as a way to actually increase that limit and provide more confidence to the lender that, that the rent will, will be paid, even if tenants do not, right? Especially in this climate where if you don't pay rent, you know, if tenants default on the rent payments, the legal process to, to, to remedy that or to get them out can take anywhere from eight to 12 months. So as a homeowner, that property loses rental income for over 12 months. And that's really the risk that the banks are afraid of when it comes to, to lending. So it, it's something that we're kind of looking to see if we can improve that for, for a lot of homeowners and real estate investors out there. So Villa, I'm thinking here, you know, if someone's looking to grow their portfolio, if you could package in a rent guaranteed product to help them qualify and still continue to grow their portfolio, that might be an interesting That's exactly case. kind of what, what we're exploring. Yeah, for sure. But yeah. Alex, I don't want to see your thunder. You know, you mentioned, okay, so yes. <laughs> it's all going to share thunder. You've got to look for alternatives for, you know, to expand. I'll, I'll let you continue down that, that train of thought because I think a lot of people find this interesting. Yeah. And then some, some of the programs we've come across lately that are actually very interesting is that's the traditional model of scaling your residential portfolio kind of one at a time. However, we've come across a lot of programs lately where you can kind of batch them. 
So when do you can get to, let's say, five units or more? So with the definition of a residential property is four units or less. So if you yeah. buy a detached home, that's one unit. A detached home with a legal basement, two units. Triplex, three units, et cetera. Okay. Uh, a garden home counts as a unit too. So mm -hmm. if you get a duplex with a garden home, three units. So anything below five units is, is you're all good, essentially. But as soon as you get to five and above, you essentially become what's deemed as a commercial property. So it's it a few number of units. Lot of things. It's been a number of units, not number of properties, right? So that's where that five. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So once you get to five units and above, though, uh, what's interesting is that the residential qualifying process is heavily based on, you know, 50% of rental income, your personal income, your credit score. It's much more heavy on kind of your qualifying criteria. Mm -hmm. But we've seen programs now where, let's say, if you get to five units, so if you bought three uh, duplexes, that's six units. Um, so six units being more than five, you could essentially then qualify under a commercial program. So the, the beauty of commercial programs, uh, so it's the equivalent of like picturing a guy buying the entire condo project or a multifamily building. Like there's a lot of commercial property investments that landlords do, but you can actually do this with a residential uh, overlay where it's essentially, let's say, uh, a bunch of townhomes that are side-by-side -side link homes, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. um, you can batch them into one aggregate or blanket security, and then it can be treated as commercial. So then when you do it that way, you're actually only qualifying based on the rent rule and everything else. And it becomes a lot less dependent on your personal qualifying ability. And you can do those in hold codes, which then frees up your qualifying power personally to then still go after rental properties. So we see this become a bit more of a material thing where people are kind of in that maybe 10 plus property range. Where you I can see. then start to think of like, I'm going to get four at a time on my next one. Uh, and that's where we can then see a lot of like, you can then be buying four or five properties at a time. And where there's a huge ability to leverage is that in some of these programs, you can put down as little as 5% even on rental property yeah. uh, versus the traditional 20% that you'd have. To oh, wow. So, so the terms on the commercial mortgage are typically friendlier than, than what you would get on the personal uh... Uh, it depends where. So essentially, if you're able to get like what's called a like a, let's say a, a qualifying insured mortgage from the commercial side, you're at like CMB plus half a percent right now, which is kind of like let's say I think it's last time I checked probably about four percent. So that's right. actually equivalent or if not lower than what you'd get on the A side with a residential mortgage. Mm -hmm. So just like in the residential space, you'll kind of have like that A prime bucket that you can go for, or then you go into alternative where you're more around like the sevens. Um, but nonetheless, it's still like the ability to leverage sometimes is more important than because uh, oh, okay. you can also get 40, 50 year amortization. I have questions, lots of them. So let's just hey, slow this down. You talk about AA lenders and alternative lenders. What does that mean, by the way? Like for the average person doesn't understand what that means. Yeah. So think of A lenders as, uh, so prime lenders, A lenders are, uh, that is like the highest all right. I don't want to say highest credit quality because you have tons of people with good credit that go to alternative lenders. It's more of it's their traditional banking process where I think the easiest way to think about it is those mortgages end up getting securitized, uh, which might not be a better way of explaining it, actually. But yeah. it's more of they get access to the lowest cost of funding okay. because it's a more standard cookie cutter product. So they didn't take a bunch of these mortgages, put them in a pool, sell it off to investors. But to be able to pool it, it has to meet insurability criteria which then restricts a lot of what that mortgage can do. So it's typically lower risk uh, and hence lower rates So is as it well. fair to say that's offered through like an RBC, a BMO, Scotiabank, those kind of big name banks? Uh, yes. So most A-lenders, you'd see the banks, you'd see a lot of model lines too. So it could be people like First National, MCAP, uh, even credit unions, Duca, 
uh, Meridian, some of those ones. Okay. So those would have A lenders. Even Equitable Bank actually would have an A side. Okay. But then alternative lenders can actually also be banks because, for example, RBC has an alternative side. Equitable has an alternative side. Home Trust has an alternative side. Uh, so a lot of these lenders. Okay. And there's a lot to kind of understand and bringing up the average homeowner or the landlord to understand this stuff. There's a lot going on, which makes it pretty powerful having these kind of conversations with you, Alex, and perhaps the tools that you guys got in place to help people qualify. On that note, then, if I know one thing I always try to look at and try to do the math is, is knowing where interest rates are are at and and where they're going, I might have an opportunity to probably break my financing and refinance a, a mortgage to get a better rate if the numbers make sense. Do you guys look at that as well or have any tools for that? Yeah. So actually in your perch profile, there's actually a section like under your properties. Every week we recalculate what the market rate is for it. So we're actually, hey, we're, we're constantly telling people if they should break their mortgage to switch of like, just, you know, is there an opportunity to break early and save? And then there's also, we are also every month we recalculate the equity in the property. So we're telling you how much equity could be available to refinance as well. Very cool. Those are typically the two main trigger points for somebody of, I would switch if there's a net benefit to doing so. Mm -hmm. So we're not just saying only if there's a lower rate, because if you, if you have a huge penalty to save 10 basis points on your mortgage, it's not usually not worth it. Uh, but we actually do what's called the net benefit. So we'll take the interest rate savings minus your penalty. And then only if that number is positive, do we recommend it. So basically uh, you're automating the, uh, all the, the manual work I've done in the past to see if I can get my best rate and making it easy and just log into a dashboard and see what and the numbers say. Not only that, you don't even have to think about it anymore. So I forget what the, the, the word, it's like the mental burden or like yeah. the, uh, the, the, ba the mental baggage you have to carry around. It's like, we actually notify you. You'll get an email that says when you can switch. And if it's negative, then you just don't hear from us. We're not going to spam you. You might say, we'll tell you exactly when you can save. That's cool. That's very cool. I just That allows me to be top of the market without doing the work. Because I'd only do it like once in a while, every, you know, maybe once a year when I was looking at my mortgages. So the cool that you guys have built that into a dashboard with auto notifications. Brilliant. And honestly, the one thing I'll mention is, so so when you said is exactly what most people do is like, you know, the, the once a year refresher tends to be kind of the main area where people will do it. If they do it. And, and if you do it, and, and I don't blame you, it's not like it's a fun thing to do, right? It's uh, to refresh your mortgage rates. But what I can say is that if you just think of the last year, the sheer like peak to trough of like where mortgage rates have gone yeah. in that year, you could have missed so many windows. The delta is huge. So, so that's really the benefit of our system because since it's every week, um, we're, we're constantly looking to see like once it happens, you switch. Yeah. Uh, so where this was especially useful for some of our clients was in Q1 of last year, uh, before rates kind of really started to rally, like in the near future, we had all these variable rate mortgage holders where our system picked up the, the inflection of the, of the yield curve going forward mm -hmm. that kind of anticipated toward much higher prime rate increases. And we had sent out a flurry of emails for every variable rate holder of lock and fix, net savings expected at this. So we had, I think about, yeah, maybe a dozen or a little bit more than a dozen people to take us up on it. And I still get the thank you emails today yeah, where they're like, it's, man, it's I lost like 2.8% <laughs> like Amazing. three, five year fix. Thank you. Because <laughs> today they'd be at like five. For yeah, sure. I, I, I can see on, on, that, on, that, <laughs> on that note, Alex, do you recommend people uh, jump on a fixed or, or variable rate mortgage? And how should they go about deciding uh, in this environment right now? And I'll, yeah. I'll give this a date. So we're speaking in end of May, just after May long weekend, 2023. Yeah. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah. Yeah, no fair, I guess. Yeah, because the numbers I say you know, might be super low or high, I guess, whenever, depending on when somebody listens to this.
Hey there, sorry for the quick interruption. This podcast is all based on the collective wisdom of everyone. It's interactive. We absolutely need your input and feedback. So if there's a comment, a question, a best practice that you've learned that relates to an episode or just something that's come across your mind you think would be great for the show, we are all about taking this collective wisdom to better the rental industry. Please, please share with us, good or bad, we'll take it all. I've got tough skin. Um, you can send your questions and concerns and feedback all to forrent at singlekey.com. Okay, let's get you right back in that episode. Thank you so much. So, so the question that I know everybody hates to get, but in this case, I'll unfortunately have to use this, it depends. Um, so luckily though, it's based on the moment in time where you're going to make that decision. So one lender might have a really competitive variable offer or a fixed offer. For us, it all comes down to the economics of that expectation. So we have a Pathfinder tool, which actually helps you calculate it to the penny. Um, so we actually will have our interest rate forecast, which we update every single day, which factors in your renewal rates of if you take a three-year versus a five-year, what's your rate at three years plus those two years and how does that compare to five? So where this goes beyond the traditional rate comparison site is that anybody can see that 5.1 is better than 5.2. Yeah. Rate, right. Yeah. But what it doesn't tell you is, do I go three year? Do I go five year? Do I go fixed? Do I go variable? Like what penalties, what terms are buried into that mortgage? That was even my follow-up question is like, what are the, but yeah. maybe we'll explore that later is like, what are all the considerations you have to take into account when you're actually deciding to switch your mortgage over? So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah. So actually, so our Pathfinder tool essentially takes all those core problems. Uh, and even if you have an existing offer, you can plug it into the Pathfinder and we'll tell you how it compares to everything else. But essentially, we're looking at the interest rate forecast to compare the terms and the, the rate type differences and quantify it for you. So, you know, this is you're leaving $6,000 on the table if you go with this rate versus this rate. Mm. Um, and you'll see that the answer is not actually always the same. So, for example, for a while, it was low term fixed mortgages that were like the top contender. And, and the general theme was that, oh, it's because rates are going to go up, so you should go for a shorter term. That's no longer true. I think today, actually, the five-year fix is actually the most competitive because they've, like, they've corrected for that. So now a lot of people are now kind of overpaying if they go into a certain term. Um, so we help quantify that. Variable rates are still dramatically overpriced so relative to where the fixed rates are. Um, but that could come back down. Because uh, spreads could easily compress a lot more, or sorry, widen compared to where they are now. Mm -hmm. right. uh, but that's why it's so beneficial because based on the day you make that decision, your answer might be different than the person who has to make it the next month. So that's why I always suggest that worry about it when it's time to make the decision, but then also like have the right tools to help you make it at that point in time. Right, right. Totally. No, that makes sense. And if you can do the math for us, that's even better. Yes. <laughs> and you know, if we're having this conversation and hey, I'm thinking about maybe kind of switching my mortgage over, or moving from variable to fix or changing to a different provider to get a better rate. What are those key considerations that I need to take into account that will affect my kind of cost of switching to, to the new? Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing that, and we always help people quantify it is should you even do it? Yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll calculate your expected penalty. We'll calculate the expected switch savings so you can get an idea of what that looks like. Mm -hmm. So that's in the context of somebody who's breaking their mortgage early. So somebody who's coming up for renewal, when they switch, typically there isn't really a cost to do so. Uh, most lenders will pick up the tab for your legal fees uh, when you switch over to a new lender. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you want to break early, different story. And then also, if you want to pull money out, reset your amortization to lower your payments or whatever yeah, it is you want to Restructure, essentially. Uh, yeah, if you want to refinance, it's going to cost you legal fees every time. Right. Um, so that's so those are some, some of the considerations. The other thing is then in regards to... Uh, so that's like kind of the primary considerations. The secondary considerations is the terms and the kind of like what comes with it. 
So for example, uh, just to give you some use cases where it makes sense is we had a client that was approaching retirement. So they wanted, so we, we set them up with a home equity line of credit because they'd be able to tap that line of credit if they needed it later without having to requalify for it once they retire. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, in that use case, it's not necessarily the lowest rate that was actually the most beneficial to them because they had a very small mortgage. Uh, it was actually just being able to access their leverage later in life without needing to do it through like a reverse mortgage or a private mortgage because they no longer qualify once they retire. Right. Um, those are then the things where it really comes down to that holistic big picture. And, and it is part of what we do in our assessment. So as much as I'll you know, raise our flag for we have the automation and the tech, I think it, we still very much have that. Every client has a dedicated mortgage advisor, and it's still very important to have that person to kind of be the, the shepherd or the Sherpa uh, through the journey there just to help them kind of make the best decision. Because it's if you have somebody put in the wrong inputs without essentially thinking of the bigger picture, like you're going to get the wrong answer. Totally. So ultimately, it's meant to enable them, but then we still need somebody with the guardrails. Now that that helps. And if I can ask a stupid question with your permission, uh, is it generally, you know, if your mortgage is not up for renewal, is it generally, you know, less costly to cancel a variable mortgage versus a, a fixed mortgage? So it depends on this, the interest rate curve, actually. So what's interesting is right now, so historically, the common, uh, not misconception, but the, oh God, what's the expression? It is the... I think that if I'm on variable, there's no real kind of, a, a, you know, set kind of rate. So I should be able to break it at any time and just move you know, jump onto the, to the kind of like the guaranteed rate or the fixed rate. But if I'm on, on the so rate, you can, so yeah. you can usually switch from variable to a fixed rate without penalty, like with your existing lender. However, the caveat there is they know that you can't leave. So they're not going to give you a very competitive fixed rate the majority of the time. So yeah. you kind of have to weigh that against if I just broke and switched, would it actually save gotcha. me more money? And so that is the first, and that's where a lot of lenders will get you because they'll be like, we'll do it for free if you stay. Right. So then you want to at least see what it is versus the market. Because um, I had a client recently, actually, and they called their bank to switch fix. Their rate was roughly 40 basis points higher than what the market rate was wow. for that fixed okay. rate. So even breaking it, they paid an $8,000 penalty, but I got them $10,000 in cash back with a lower yeah. rate and they was able to cover the penalty. So it's, you have to look at the full picture in that sense. Yeah. The second thing is the penalty. So the, the biggest kind of, common notion was that you should always go variable because it has a lower penalty. But that's no longer true because it was true when variable rates were extremely low. Uh, but a lot of lenders will actually do it based on three months interest, which in this case, your variable rate is higher than your fixed rate. So you're actually going to be paying a higher penalty right. a lot of the times with the variable rate. Uh, and especially some lenders don't do it based on your actual rate. They do it based on the prime rate is their reference point. So at that point, you're paying a 6.7% three-month interest penalty instead of like your 4 or 3 or 2%. Very, very um, So, so yeah. yeah, there's definitely some caveats there. Yeah, no, and again, these are basic questions that I hope a lot of our listeners already know some of this stuff, but I, I figured uh, why not cover some of the basics. Um, you know, on that note as well, Alex, you know, you mentioned earlier that most people just look at price. You know, what is the lowest rate? What is the lowest you know, kind of like interest rate that I get on my mortgage? In your opinion, what are some of the, uh, you know, and, and having seen a lot of the lenders and different ways they structure their mortgages. What are some of the key terms that to be wary of or to kind of uh, pay attention to when you're deciding between different providers? And maybe let's call it the top five or so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one of the biggest ones I think is the home equity line of credit, but not just a home equity line of credit, a readvanceable home equity line of credit. Okay. Um, so this was a huge saving grace for a lot of landlords in the last couple of years. So with the home equity line of credit, when it's readvanceable, what that means is your mortgage and your, your HELOC are essentially a joint entity. Mm -hmm. So all the principal you pay down on your mortgage immediately goes towards your home equity line of credit mm -hmm. balance. 
So in the last few years, when you have a, a massive increase in your mortgage payment, let's say if you have a variable rate or even on renewal, I think what happened to a lot of people is their properties went into a negative cash flow position. Unexpectedly. Obviously, there's some things you plan for and some things you don't. Mm -hmm. um, with the readvanceable HELOC, they were essentially able to convert all their mortgages into interest-only payments, which dramatically increased the cash flow. So while, yes, you're increasing your mortgage to essentially do that with the home equity line of credit, I think sometimes cash flow is much more important than the absolute ROI because if you need to cash flow your properties temporarily, if your only other option is to sell it yeah. or to like liquidate other assets. No, and that's, that's the worst option. Money. You always want to be able to carry your property through the tough times, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was cutting some people's mortgages by 20, 30, 40% a month. Wow. Um, is, so that's one thing of like the key term is, is so yeah, there, does it come with a readvanceable HELOC? And, and would the readvanceable HELOC be available for the entire lifetime of the, of the mortgage or just a five-year term that you're signed up for? Yeah. So when you renew, it actually carries with it. So that's actually the beauty of it is because you can give your property reappraised at any time. If you, there you have to requalify to increase your limit. Yeah. Let's say on day one, you know, you bought a $500,000 property at a $400,000 mortgage at a HELOC. Yeah. 20 years from now, when you paid your mortgage down to, let's say, 100K, you'll still have a $300,000 HELOC limit. Right. Because uh, your whole 400K has been locked in, even if you no longer qualify for it. Amazing. Um, so that's one. Versus if you had that mortgage and no HELOC and you paid the 400 down to 100 and you wanted to increase past 100, you'd have to requalify at that point. Yeah. And, and, you know, the beauty of that as well is that it seems like that kind of line increases with the more properties you have. So as your exposure increases to the market, as you have more properties, so does your flexibility, because now you have more home equity to pull on if you need to kind of make make your cash flow. Right. So very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's definitely one key term uh, that like a lot of people can focus on. Uh, the other one, I think, comes down to. So this one is where it's more of a change in circumstance. So there's something called a bona fide sale clause, which means you can't break your mortgage unless it's to sell. Um, so typically this isn't for rental properties. Also be, it's more the use case where somebody buys their house and then eventually they decide to move and rent out where they're living. If they're in a bona fide mortgage, it makes it a little tricky because you can't ever break your mortgage basically. Like if you want to break for other reasons. So mm -hmm. typically with real estate investors, one of the secrets to their success is they're very good at taking advantage of leverage. Yeah. Uh, so not a lot of them have like, you know, properties that are free and clear. You're typically taking that equity and reinvesting it to earn compound returns. So being not able to break your mortgage is a huge limiter to growth because you're essentially losing that asset to be able to do so. I, I've got some questions from, from the landlord investor side that you kind of raised my brow on. So, you know, going back to, you mentioned per, perch capital or those commercial lending options. So if I've got a, say a handful of properties, um, I, but I've got different JV partners and perhaps I might have different exit strategies in some of the properties. Can I still combine them underneath the commercial product or, or do you need a bit of an apples to apples consistency with how that blanket mortgage is applied to the type of properties? Uh, so there's definitely different use cases. So there's like, just like in the, you know, there's the prime lending, the cookie cutter versus the alternative lending on the rest side. Yeah. It's the same thing in the commercial side. So, you know, you might not get that prime pricing, like if it's, if it doesn't fit the box, but then you could still be borrowing at like pretty, pretty large limits, yeah, okay. like maybe a premium up rate. Um, so I think on the commercial side, it's, so on the residential side, when you buy, it's kind of like, if you don't buy you personally, it's trickier just by default. Totally. So banks don't like holding companies. They don't like bear trust agreements. They don't like any they, of that. They stuff like playing like gene vanilla. Exactly. So then, but on the commercial side, it's actually the expectation almost that most of these will be owned by holding companies or some kind of entity. Um, so it's a little bit more easy to play with. So whether it's a joint venture 
I mean, as long as you don't have the, like, you know, your 40 related orgs with beneficial ownership, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. To figure out, then it's, it's still okay. it's doable. For sure. uh, do, do you guys have different terms on that lending product with Perch Capital? Like, what, what's your typical period that you want to lend out on or amortization, I guess? Yeah. So for Perch Capital, and maybe just a, a shameless plug as well of like, you know, we, we pay out 9% returns on, on Perch Capital to investors. Uh, mm-hmm. So we do get monthly distributions. Um, so it is still very much like a good way to be exposed to real estate without having to be exposed to the property. Because I think when you do mortgages, you're essentially betting on the person and the collateral versus when you, when you do real estate, it's more exposure to the collateral. I mean, and to the person, but you're directly really uh, impacted by changes of property value. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the mortgage, it's kind of a fixed return, but then it's really just dependent on your ability to protect your collateral. Um, so when it comes to the terms and like essentially what we lend on for purchase capital, so we don't actually do commercial or like land development, anything like that. So our fund criteria is more around residential properties, but whether it's a holding company, an individual, like we don't really care. For us, we look at beneficial ownership. It's not so much about like, we, we're not, we're pretty neutral on the structure itself. Okay, that's flexible. Um, that's good to know. And then our average term is about six months. So it's actually very short-term stuff. And it's usually predicated on a clear exit strategy. Mm. So when we work with a borrower, Purge Capital is enabling them to graduate, which is, you were a B lender, but now we're going to make you an A client, or it's meant to be on a ten, like a timeliness difference. So uh, it can be someone who's self-employed who needs their NOA and they're buying a property in February. They won't have their NOA till May. So we're going to bridge them for three months. Mm. Uh, it could also be a non-qualifying or not non-qualifying, but essentially it just doesn't fit the traditional mold. Um, so this could be somebody who bought under a rent to own program that didn't hit the lender's criteria. And we can essentially then refinance them out as, a, as in the future. But there's a lot of use cases where certain things don't meet the lender's guidelines, but it's still a good deal. And then it just takes time essentially for them to, to remediate the, whatever situation it was. And then we can refine them out. Uh, another good example is somebody who buys a cottage property, let's say. Okay. It uh, doesn't have a potable water source, which makes it a type B property, not type A. So you can't get as much financing. We'll pri- finance it privately. They'll replace the water filter and then we can refine them out to an A lender. Okay, cool. And that, that private... If I want to invest with Perch Capital, you have a minimum and cash limit. Do you guys do registered saving plans or pension plans as well? Funds or what type of money can you guys use? Yeah, so we actually are converting our fund into a registered account eligible investment. So we are going to be opening a MIC. Uh, It's currently structured as a fund, which is open accounts only. Okay. Uh, So starting in June, we will be able to accept registered accounts. And then we have a $10,000 minimum. Uh, we only accept funds through our exempt market dealer partners. So people can't directly invest in us, but essentially they can check out our site. It's perchcapital.ca. And then we, our EMPs will help do uh, some suitability to see if it's the right fit for them before they invest. Cool. Very cool. Awesome. I wanted to kind of go a bit deeper on that. You already mentioned some alternative kind of uh, different types of properties, Alex. So like, you know, lakefront cottages and, and uh, what about like, when considering kind of a financing for a single family home versus a more versus a condo versus a duplex, triplex? Duplex or, or larger properties, are there certain types of properties that are a lot more difficult to finance or to find lending for than, than it is for your standard kind of um, single family home? So the way, so like anything four units or under, like whether it's one unit or four units, most lenders typically look at it like very similar. Like it's all residential, okay. especially if it's under a million dollar purchase price because then it's insurable. Right. Uh, so I mean, I'm trying to find the most politically correct way to say this, but when you have an insurable property, you're essentially getting insurance on it and securitizing it. So it's like from a risk standpoint, you've mitigated it completely Very because low. you have a piece of paper that says, I'm going to get paid out if this doesn't pay out. Mm-hmm. Obviously, considering you, you have to have done the underwriting correctly, 
But when it's insurable, like lenders' risk appetites go way up. So if like any of the insurers are willing to do it, they will. I think the areas where it becomes more problematic is when it doesn't fit insurer criteria. And just to clarify, you mean insurance insurable is in like from a home homeowner's insurance perspective or CMHC insurance, mortgage insurance type? Uh, yeah, mortgage default insurance. So like so oh. Sagan, CMHC, or Canada yeah. Guarantee will put in one of like they'll they'll search, they'll insure it basically. So, so gotcha. I'll just word that differently so we all understand is if I'm going to buy a property and CHMC gives me homeowners or mortgage default insurance and I default, it guarantees that the bank or whoever the lender is gets paid out the mortgage that I went defaulted on. It doesn't directly benefit me, the homeowner. Yeah. So it's the irony is that you are paying the premium for it when you buy the, or when you have less than 20% down, you pay for the premium, but it's actually to the lender's benefit. Yeah. So it's essentially protecting the bank from you not paying CMHC or whoever the insurer is will pay the bank uh, their money that they're owed. Right. And, and in what cases, and I ask this for a lot of the folks who are looking to kind of buy their first property or get into the real estate market. You know, there are some first buyer incentives, as you know. Can you walk us through some of, some of those incentives, Alex, and some of the new ones as well? Like I heard about the $40,000 kind of a savings plan now that to help you kind of save for that down payment. Uh, the ability to put, put down a smaller down payment, but at the same time kind of risking not, not being insurable and having to pay a premium. What are some of those incentives and pros and cons of, of making that 20% down payment versus kind of taking advantage of some of the first-time buyer offers? Yeah, no, great question. So the first thing is when it comes to incentives, the interesting thing is there's a lot of municipalities or provinces that'll have like their own flavor to it. So I think those mm -hmm. ones are a little less well-known, but sometimes looking into it can be a huge benefit. So uh, there could be low-income grants, like literally to help you buy your first home. So I think if so, so yeah, check out your municipality and province first to see if there is anything that kind of applies to you. The second thing is once you go from there, then it's a matter of like any government incentives. And again, this is my personal opinion, but like things like the first time home buyer incentive have had a very low uptake predominantly because it doesn't actually help you qualify for more. If anything, it actually usually makes you qualify for less uh, than you could get without it. So then the only real benefit is for the first time home buyer incentive is if you think property prices are going down, it's going to help you cushion kind of some of that reduction. But then if you think property prices are going down, you probably shouldn't buy. Uh, so yeah. it's kind of like, I, I don't see much benefit to it personally. Well, that's interesting. So if you do take advantage of the first time buyer offer, which is basically, I think as low as a 5% down payment instead of 20, then you cannot qualify for as much, which makes sense because your LTV or, or uh, loan to value ratio will be lower. Right. Uh, and, and it's, Oh no, like the first time buyer incentive is one specific, it's like a matching program. So essentially like, let's say you're going to put down 5%, the government's going to put down another 5%. Okay. Uh, so you like you share equity or the ownership of, of to some right. degree of your home, okay. uh, but yeah. you can put down 5% just without the first time home buyer incentive under the traditional qualifying criteria though. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. So like the incentive is basically just a way, like the way it's advertised is like, it helps you reduce your payment, which it does because you're getting money, which helps reduce your mortgage amount, which helps reduce your payment. Uh, but you actually qualify for less because their criteria is more strict than just the general qualifying criteria. That makes sense. Right. Uh, where you can get a lot of like jump in your purchasing power though is when you get to 20% down. Uh, so not only does 20% down save you on the mortgage default insurance premium, you actually then go from like, so with less than 20%, you have to have a 25 year amortization. Yeah. Uh, with 20%, you can get a 30 year amortization, which really? lowers your payment mm -hmm. and increases what you qualify for. In addition to that, a lot of lenders that are doing uh, 25 year amortizations cannot let your GDS go higher. Your, one of your debt servicing ratios, they can't go higher than 39%. When you go with a 30 year AM and 20% down, you can get an exception on it with various lenders. Uh, so 
not even exaggerating. We have cases where somebody goes from 15 to 20% down, their purchasing power goes up about 20, 30%. Oh, wow. That's significant. Yeah. And, and that is kind of like the, one of the, deeper, yeah, that's one of the biggest kind of, I think, roadblocks to, 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 to home ownership, given that property prices have kind of risen substantially and being able to get enough kind of financing to be able to, to, to purchase property is difficult. And I think you've already kind of spoken to, to some of the, the ways, but what are some other ways that, that you guys approach would help first time home buyers kind of get in the market and, and overcome some of these hurdles? Yeah. So I think the first one is uh, sometimes it's literally just helping people understand what the, so I've met a ton of buyers where they're just adamant of, I will never put 20, like not put 20% down and I will keep saving till I get there. However, when you look at, well, how much are you saving every month? It's not enough. Cause like as prices keep appreciating, if you're not saving at a high enough velocity, you're actually falling further behind every year yeah. being able to buy. Mm. Um, so like, honestly, most of the times like any scenario we've run is that if you're renting and you want to buy, even if you don't have 20% down, it rarely ever is not to your benefit. So we actually have a calculator, literally our rent versus buy calculator, where you can see the difference. I've very rarely ever seen a scenario where somebody would actually be worse off uh, unless they wanted to sell it in a year, then obviously, you know, keep renting. But if you plan on holding this property for a while, put down less than 20%. If you qualify, it's not a problem. So sometimes it's just kind of perception shaping is one of the biggest blockers I find with buyers. Yeah. The second thing is actually in regards to uh, just expanding the criteria or the parameters. Uh, so some people don't know that they can put their parents on, siblings on, somebody can be a co-signer, you can have guarantors. Guarantors aren't on title and they give you the same kind of benefits. Okay. Uh, alternative lenders do contributory income. Uh, so you can have somebody who's not on title helping you qualify for the deal. So there's so many of these use cases where things can be added to your qualifying criteria that help boost your purchasing power. Um, and even in some cases, it might just be like, you only can qualify as in, with an alternative lender today, but there's a clear path to like you being with a prime lender in a year or two. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. So it, sure, you'll pay a bit extra in interest, but it's still worth it. Can we double click a bit more on the guarantor piece? How does having a guarantor help you kind of qualify for more? Are you able to then also include their income as part of the, uh, um, you know, applicant's income to, to get a higher ratio? Yep. Uh, so there's restrictions on who can be a guarantor, but essentially at a high level, there's uh, a lot of people will hear the word co-applicant and guarantor and they, they're not the same though. There's one very key difference between the two. Yep. So when you're a co-applicant, you're signing that you're on title. You are part of the ownership of the property and you're also on the mortgage. Mm -hmm. When you're a guarantor, you actually aren't on title. You don't have to be. And then you will be on the mortgage as a guarantor. However, as a guarantor, most of the time that mortgage does not shut up or, sh or shut up. The mortgage won't shut up but it won't show up on your credit bureau either. So the benefit of being a guarantor is it doesn't actually impact your purchasing power on the next property. As a co-applicant, you have to carry that property into the next one, uh, which is painful if you're more than one applicant. Right, that makes sense. Interesting. And the most common scenario that you'll see from this is that, uh, let's say parents help kid uh, qualify for their first property and then you know dad or mom decides to co-sign to help them out, yeah. which is great because now that person can buy their property but then two years later, mom and dad want to refinance or sell their property to get a bigger home, or maybe they're, they're moving elsewhere. But now mom or dad can no longer qualify because they have to carry the son's mortgage as part of their application. So you kind of really have to think these things through right. uh, to make sure you're not blocking yourself. Uh, or sometimes parents put the kid on mortgage, um, which one wipes out their first time home buyers benefits because they no longer are deemed a first time home buyer. So they can't use their, they lose their tax credits, land transfer tax credits mm -hmm. and everything on the property. So things like that to consider where sometimes you can make it work, but is it worth it? 
uh, is kind of the, the other thing to think about. Very interesting. Well, you can see kind of a level of detail and kind of considerations that they need to take into account, right? When making some of these decisions, it can get very complicated very quickly. So, you know, having somebody knowledgeable like you to kind of share some of the experience here is, is very helpful. And, and I think for more information, uh, a lot of our listeners can, can just go to Perch and, and really speak to one of your advisors. Um, you know, to, to kind of just speak a bit about the economy as well, Alex, and I think this is a bit of a hot topic now, especially given the, I would say, uh, housing crisis that, that we're seeing in Canada, whether it's on the rental side. Thankfully, the, the, the buy and sell market has or the, the you know, the, the home prices have kind of come down a bit now with the higher interest rates. Um, do you see this as the ideal time for, for a new buyer to get into the market? Or if you're if you're a, an existing investor to, to then actually double down and, and buy, more, buy into more properties? What's your outlook over the next 12 months or 24 months? Yeah, so essentially outlook. So what's interesting is things have so far been uh, playing out more or less the way I kind of thought it would over the last three, four months. Um, so I'd say the best time to buy would have probably been two months ago because not a lot of people were back in the market yet. It was still a pretty stable market, a bit more of a balanced market, yeah. I'd say. Um, now things have already started to heat up. It's not so much that there's just an an exorbitant amount of sales or demand like there is a lot of demand it's just there's such a disproportionately low amount of listings and inventory to go around and we're seeing this with our clients so it might not be across canada specifically but maybe more so in the gta is where we see it a lot um is that people are going in the house has been on the market for like a day or two and there's already like 10 bidders like within 24 to 48 hours right uh, so some of these are just absolute chaos that we're seeing so i think it's it is going to heat up is really kind of where we see the outlook going because the bank has made it pretty clear that they've peaked. So at this point, there's not really a lot of expectations that they're going to further increase rates. It's just a matter of how long are they going to delay rent, like uh, decreasing. Our last outlook, which we did in April, we're going to be publishing our next one in about a week, uh, was that we expected rates to go down about two and a quarter uh, in the next, by the end of 2025. So it's going to be about starting in 2024. Uh, about a quarter point every quarter for like the next two years, uh, a little over two years is kind of where the outlook was. Mm -hmm. I think just based on where uh, rates are today, like it's probably going to slightly uh, flatten the curve a little bit. So maybe instead of two and a quarter, maybe it'll be one and a half, one and a quarter. Um, still, the trend is downward, not upward. Um, but what that does is as rates continue to decrease, we're going to have kind of this culminating effect of, lower rates are going to further increase people's qualifying amount. Mm -hmm. That's going to give people the comfort they need to then start looking at maybe now's the time to list my home and go buy the bigger place that I've been putting off. Because uh, what we're seeing now is a lot of pent up buyers. And we've got high immigration. We have a lot of people that were kind of waiting to see where the housing market would play out because they didn't feel comfortable buying well, and, in the last and, and, months. You know, it's, fun, it's funny you say that because we're seeing a lot of those folks kind of really putting pressure on the rental market. Yeah, you know, as you've seen now, especially during this period of kind of down downslide in, in, in kind of buy prices, rental prices have, have skyrocketed for that exact same reason is that we saw a bit Market of a pressure from, from folks coming back, you know, a, a lot of students coming back to school from COVID and, and kind of wanting uh, student housing or moving out of their parents' homes. Uh, in, in September last year, uh, you had a kind of restart to the immigration and, and population influx. And then in addition to that, you have that natural population of buyers that would graduate from renting and enter the, you know, enter the ownership market. They're not leaving because they're waiting for prices to bottom out. So it was a kind of a perfect storm that really kind of boosted rental prices by about 20 to 30 percent over the past year. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, and yeah, we, we saw that like huge increase in rents, which, mm. you know, was was kind of expected since you had such a huge increase in a lot of people's mortgage rates. But yeah, to your point, there was a lot of other factors at play there. Yeah. Well, and, um, and like the compression, right? What did, what did the interest rates end up going up by? We went up by like 
425% in the last uh, little while. Yeah, yeah so like that it. amount, right, knocks that whole bottom segment that could just qualify. Well, they're not qualifying now. They're forced to be renters. More, more demand in that rental market, right? So, which is why I think we've seen those rates. Yeah. Where they go. Well, you've seen a lot of people push out into alternative too. So I'd say historically, like uh, we probably did 80, 85% of our volumes were with A or prime lenders. Oh yeah. I'd say that number is probably now 70% or 65%. You're seeing a lot more alternative. Um, and again, like high credit people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our average credit score in per capital, which is private lending, which is even more expensive than alternative is about 792. Um, so these are high credit quality yeah, borrowers. Interesting. Um, so a lot of people are getting pushed into alternative capital sources just because they're, they just don't fit the box and that box continues to get. And, and those ratios on your market share you just gave us, that's over the, like, just call them the last six months. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I'd say last six, maybe even 12. Okay, cool. But, but yeah, a huge shift that we're seeing go into that, uh, into the other direction. Right. Uh, but at the same time, also like a tremendous amount of value opportunity. So we've had people. I think what was interesting is because uh, normally refinances would go down uh, when rates go up and home uh, home values uh, come down, but landlords were looking to pull equity out as quickly as they could just to pick up as many. Like, uh, in Q1, it was like feeding frenzy of like, I need to get as many of these as humanly possible. It's like, you know, can I use my RESP as collateral? It's like, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like whatever you could do to get more equity out, to get into the housing market was really like for, I think investors were the first ones to kind of really jump on the opportunity. Yeah. And then that drove a bit of that uh, demand back up. And now we're seeing home prices up again and everything. And then the general market, I think, then follows because once the trend is up, everybody wants in on it. Right, absolutely. And uh, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And now, you know, I think as we, as we look ahead, maybe in the next 12 to 24 months with rising interest rates, with, you know, the inflation coming down and, and potentially a risk of recession in the horizon, does that worry you? Do you think that might, that might be impact uh, home prices? It might impact people's ability to pay, you know, layoffs kind of causing downward pressure on home prices. Uh, I think that's kind of the balancing act now is that, do you want to take advantage of the opportunity of the lower kind of prices, but at the same time, weighted against the risk of a recession further driving prices down. Yeah. So I think the, you know, the million dollar question, uh, especially literally the average house price, but like essentially, I think that the biggest question there is that if there's a recession, does it necessarily lead to lower price? Because I think historically Canada is a little weird like that because in 2008, like the U S home prices took a tank and so did the economy. But Canada really didn't have anywhere near as much of an impact. Historically, even when we do have a slower economy, we've had, like, even during COVID, like, home prices skyrocketed. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it has more to do with, like, the supply and demand imbalances, I think, rather than... So in recessionary times, absolutely. Like, if there's people, massive layoffs and people don't have jobs, people can't qualify. That's without goes without yeah. saying. It's more of, I think the recession that they're expecting doesn't necessarily, I think, lead to lower home prices because I see nothing that would change the supply of homes to the level where we would need it to be. Mm-hmm. There's going to be nothing that will impact demand because if we want to continue to you know, increase tax revenue and, and drive up immigration yeah. uh, to do that, there's going to be an increasing number of people. Uh, and then the second thing is in, as much as there is, uh, we are seeing layoffs, our un- unemployment rate is still like, extremely low by yeah. historicals. Um, so I think like as much as there are layoffs, a lot of people are getting picked up again. Yeah. Um, so I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it kind of plays out. But 
if there's a deep recession, rates typically get cut to, to fuel growth to kind of offset. Yeah. So right. and, and the first I think both can feed into prices. higher like higher home prices as well. So I think like personally, I think it's going to be more supply demand driven, and then I think supply yeah. is going to stay low, demand is going to stay high, and that should drive to appreciating. So I think the next six to ten months will be hot, like above average uh, price growth. And then it'll start to kind of level off. And then I think it'll pick back up again once the interest rates kind of, because if interest rates steadily decline, I think it kind of gets absorbed a bit better versus like a 1% cut or something like right. that that kind of just drives everybody up the wall. I just want to ask one thing because you got me thinking there is around the supply and demand. And I agree with all those, all those points you made there, Alex. Is I'm, I'm curious in your thoughts where we're talking about foreign money entering the Canadian market. I know internationally we're viewed as a very stable uh, government, uh, government canal and all that. So generally I see a lot of foreign money um, come in to, to like Vancouver right now. And they're, they're having big challenges with that. What I struggle with, I, can you help me quantify what you think that amount of money is or, or, or how big of a factor that that plays into this, this balance and supply equation of the home market yeah, is, is it a meaningful i think portion of demand in the market right the yeah market. thank you Bill. yeah exactly so personally i have never done a mortgage for someone who who was a non-resident i personally essentially like i had never even it's not that i wouldn't do it it's just i literally haven't seen an application come through or somebody would right. do that so i think on one hand there are definitely are channels where it happens um but i think the numbers that anecdotally I can think of off the top of my head, I think they looked into it. It was something like 3% of transactions were oh, wow. foreign buyers from what I remember. Uh, with all the foreign buyer bans, which would, I guess, expire in what, about a year and a half from now that they've set in place, you know, assuming they don't need one of the many exceptions that would then let them buy anyways. Um, but essentially, let's say once that runs out, my understanding is it's not a very large number because uh, I think there's like two you know, boogeyman in, in the real estate industry. One is foreign buyers, which I think any survey has ever, like a lot of surveys usually show it's like a pretty small number of total mm -hmm. transactions. The second one is vacant homes, where you have all these foreign buyers buying a property that no one lives in. Uh, I think the latest stat that came out, there's a report from Toronto, where essentially the number of vacant homes was astronomically lower than where they expected it to be, because mm. um, there just wasn't a lot of vacant homes. Either that or there's just a uh, ubiquitous ability for people to hide their vacant homes. So I guess it's, you know, either reporting's not there or the vacant homes aren't there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but overall, I think it's, it is very much like kind of just the regular, I don't think like there's a huge off market that's driving these forces in any particular way. Yeah, I think it's just the general, everybody, you know, that's looking to buy homes are the ones that are the ones driving activity. That, that makes sense. And, and you know, interesting, an interesting factor also recently with, with kind of the changes in the economy and the fluctuations that you mentioned over the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of inter-province migration as well, right? Folks kind of like picking up and, and leaving Ontario because it just got too expensive and moving to provinces like Alberta, where, where Mac is based out of and driving home prices there uh, up in the past year. So I think you can probably kind of experience, some, you've experienced some of that yourself, Mac. But from your perspective, Alex, given that purchase now across Canada, have you seen some of that uh, shift in deals from Ontario to some of the more Western provinces in, in your on your side? Yeah. So I think what was interesting is this this really we saw a huge surge of this during COVID. Yeah. Uh, and I'd say it still has persisted, not to the same level, uh, but it wasn't even inner province. It was even like just within the same province of people that were now looking to live in like Bancroft right. instead of Toronto that would have never considered it before. Um, so there's a huge surge there and I have the amount, like so many clients that I have, it's like, they start a home buying plan. It's like, I'm either looking in Kitchener or Calgary. Uh, I'm either looking in London, Ontario or Halifax. 
Right. Uh, so it's it is interesting to just see that level of dispersion of where people are just totally comfortable picking up and going. Because uh, a lot of these people do work fully remotely. And to some degree, if, if your location and your vocation don't have to line up, why would you kind of limit yourself if you don't need to, right? Like you can go live a really good life elsewhere at a fraction of the cost. So, so a lot of people are taking Why not, right? I would love to see a report trending out that that impact. I, I'm super curious on those numbers. Yeah. There, there is. I know they're published. So there are like net immigration and emigration numbers by province. Mm -hmm. uh, I, for, I forget reading it, but there was a huge outflow, I think, from Ontario to Alberta, I think was one of the main ones. Okay. Uh, I think I'd say just anecdotally from the ones I see, like I see Calgary a lot. So not just for people that are looking to move there because it's got a lot going on for it, yeah. uh, but also just investors, like a lot of Ontario investors buying up a bunch of Calgary townhomes that just, you know, good rents pretty easy, low price of entry uh, compared to what you'd have to buy here. Absolutely. And, and I'm curious to know if, if this trend is here to stay or if people now, you know, back to work movement, if, if that'll reverse in one way, in some way, and, and kind of concentrate the population back into the major cities and then drive prices up. Um, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, TBD. I mean, I think a portion of it is here to stay, but I don't think it'll ever, I don't think it'll ever go back to where it was pre-COVID, but I also don't think it'll level off to where it was during yeah, which I think somewhere is somewhere in between. It, it provides it provides people more options to kind of you know uh, get some affordability on their on their housing costs, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, uh, Alex, I think uh, we'll have to have you back. Maybe we can have these. I don't know what that right frequency is. Maybe once a quarter or halfway through the year. This I love these macro trend conversations because it's just it's interesting hearing the different opinions from from your side on the mortgage side, which of course you guys have to be very diligent on, on your side when you do the lending just to hear how what you're seeing going on from what we're seeing uh bill and i with with rents and applications and numbers and all that stuff increasing throughout the different provinces so uh it's always insightful yeah no no i, I always love talking ch chatting about these things to you because i find i find there's not usually a lot of representation where it's like some people will see a lot of these trends but i find that like everything's so pessimistic like i, I find like the headline news around real estate is always it's going to crash. Things are going oh, down, yeah. but it's Real it, honestly, there's yeah. so much momentum. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's great. It's great having somebody experienced like yourself come to come here and share some of the, the knowledge with, with the audience. And I hope a lot of our, our listeners find, find this helpful and uh, for any more information, uh, invite them to kind of reach out to you guys at Perch and, and uh, talk to one of your advisors. Yeah, um, absolutely. Do you want to just list the best ways to check out um, Perch and Perch Capital and the different things we talked about today, Alex? Yeah. So on our site, myperch.io. Uh, so it's spelled like the fish, P-E-R-C-H, uh, or just Google us. So you'll be able to find us as well. You can create a profile. It's free to sign up. You can add your properties. You immediately get insights and then you'll get a dedicated advisor assigned to you the same day. Uh, you can chat, email, call, whatever your preferred mode of communication is. We're here for you and you need it on your terms. Um, and yeah, we're here to help you get the best deal, whether it's with us or with like, sometimes we'll tell you to stay put. So we're, we're not biased. We're just here to give you transparent advice. And then with Perch Capital, uh, more on the investment side, uh, I mean, potentially also on the borrowing side, but if you chat with our advisors, we would bring it up if Perch Capital was the right fit as, as part of your strategy. Anyways, um, Perch Capital doesn't deal directly with clients. We only deal through brokers. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Uh, cool. As, yeah, as a, as a borrower. Anyways. And, and Perch Capital's website for people to check out more information? Uh, PerchCapital.ca. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen.